Are you curious about, interested in, or working within the field of anesthesiology and you are a woman, person of color, or otherwise do not fit the stereotypical image of what an anesthesiologist looks like, then this is the podcast for you. We will discuss what life is like on the other side of the blue drape for us. Issues most relevant, such as what is anesthesia really? And we're not talking textbook definition. Tips for applying, success in residency, life as an attending, and beyond. Join us each week as we take a dive into this rich and often misunderstood field. This is your host, Dr. Alicia Peterson, and welcome to Sivo Sisters. Hello, everybody. I am Dr. Mana Hagos, general anesthesiologist, and I am pleased to be today's host to this incredible podcast. I have here with me our usual host, Dr. Alicia Peterson. We are doing the format a little differently today. In our previous conversation where I had the privilege of being the attendee, I saw that there was so much unearthed gold from our conversation. There were so many tidbits and facts from Dr. Peterson's professional, personal life that I thought would just be incredible. This time, she is in the hot seat and we get to discuss and learn a little bit more about her. So without further ado, everyone, please welcome Dr. Peterson. We are going to delve into all the amazing juicy details that we didn't get to get into last time. You are a pain management specialist, a pediatric uh, anesthesiologist. You are an entrepreneur. You are recently a TEDx speaker, which is incredible. A mother, a wife, a daughter. And I would really love to dig into what your life looks like now compared to what it did five to 10 years ago. Oh my gosh. I am so thrilled to be on this side of the mic. This is really (laughs) interesting and fun. And I'm like, what's the best way to kind of share what's been going on? So thank you for providing this, this switch off, if you will, because a lot has changed. Where do I even begin? I mean, for the longest time, I was like many of the listeners, I was on that academic path. I'm from Chicago. I went to Rush Medical School, went to Washu St. Louis for anesthesiology residency, and I stayed on for PZ Anesthesia Fellowship there. And then I went to Boston Children's for pain fellowships. Got a job after Boston Children's. I went to Texas Children's. And following that, then I went to, and this is the most recent thing, I was at Children's National. I was there from 2018 to 2023, July 14th, 2023, which for those history buffs, it's Bastille Day, the French Day of Independence. So take that as you will. But for the longest time, I was, you know, a W-2 employee um, working for someone else. And really my position, even though I directed the chronic pain clinic, was really one of... um, a title, but I didn't have the fight or the authority to really make the changes that needed to be made. And when I look back and I'm honest with myself, it never felt right to me. You know, we all have those inner voices. It's easy for us to rationalize those voices. Like if it's like, no, don't do that. You're like, but you know, I I need a, I need a job. And that's how it was from the very beginning. I mean, it's amazing to me when I look back on those first few days of working at my first organization. And then the second one, I had signs early on that this was not my final destination. You mentioned that there were early signs that this wasn't it, that 
this was but a chapter in the life book of your story. What were some of those signs? What did that look like for you? I'm going to take a step back. When I was just finishing Pain Fellowship, one of my mentors, he said to me, you know, Alicia, you coming out of fellowship, I wouldn't be surprised if you were offered a director position because they need people who are specifically trained in this area. And when he said that to me, I was immediately terrified. I was like, oh no, I'm just, I I had that mindset of, oh, I'm just a fellow. I, there's no way that, that somebody should put me in a position like that because I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. Yes, in regards to patient care, but to, to direct a clinic or direct any kind of enterprise was very daunting and intimidating. I ended up meeting a very great individual at the conference. These conferences, man, they're hotbeds for finding those positions and and hearing what's going on on the ground as far as who's moving where, who's leaving what, what organizations to look out for, which ones you should go for. And at the time, I had met someone from Texas Children's who's no longer practicing there. She's just amazing. Carl Monaco. She not only had directed, but actually developed the pain division at Texas Children's. She recruited me there. I was like, you're so cool. You're brilliant. You're strong. All the things that I want to be, all the things that I didn't know I was already, but you see it in someone else, right? And you're like, that's what I want. She was a large reason why I went there. It felt good being what I call sheltered by someone else, meaning that if there was any sort of drama, she was the one that was dealing with it. Every organization has their issues, if you will. Every specialty has their turf wars. I didn't realize coming out of fellowship that these kind of political turf wars existed. The general anesthesiologist had, I guess, a pickle against the anesthesiologists that practiced pain. And a lot of it stemmed from the fact that people who practice pain aren't in the OR because they're in clinic and they're writing notes and on the floors rounding on patients. I wasn't aware of that, but she handled a lot of that drama. Well, I didn't pay attention to the fine print. You know how they're like, you should really read the small print well, the small print for me in this instance was she was the interim pain chief, which meant that somebody was coming behind her to serve as the permanent one. <laughs> and I never met that permanent one. Like I didn't meet the one that was hired to have the, the title. When I met him, it was very clear that this person was essentially a yes man. And that was not going to work given the environment we were in. If we wanted to practice at the highest level, provide the highest quality of care, saying yes to people who have comments on pain practice and they're not pain trained is a problem. It was also a problem that the person hired to be chief did not receive formal fellowship pain training either, did not have board certification in pain. So, I, there was budding of heads. Caro, who recruited me there, she actually decided to pursue additional training. Then I was left with this individual. Because this person's a yes person, now I have to fight the battles. If I, if I see patients getting hurt or if I notice an issue, I'm very vocal about it. Because I can't, I wouldn't tolerate that for my child or anyone else's child. So yes, I'm going to say a lot of stuff. And this was, this is an environment where 
if you don't have a title, you pretty much don't speak. It's incredibly hierarchical. With it being the South, it very much still is. I mean, if you're a white male, you're able to be angry. You're able to speak up. That shows that you're confident. But if you look like me, Black woman, it comes off as angry. It comes off as abrasive. There's a lot of studies that highlight that these are sort of those code words that they give minoritized individuals to disempower them and pretty much besmirch them. Um, But nonetheless, at the time, these are the labels that I had on me. The gem of this mess was that I looked at him and I said, if he can have the title, lead a division, then I can do no worse. I can do no worse. And it increased my confidence exponentially because I developed a backbone. I saw that I had what it takes. I knew how to address patients. And I also knew how to discuss the importance of this to other people in the hospital. I began to collaborate across division. That thought of me not being able to be a leader because I was quote unquote just a fellow, I looked and I saw the real world for the first time and was like, damn, nobody here knows what they're doing. Legitimately, no one here knows what they're doing and they're not even trying. I'm like reading, I'm listening to podcasts. I'm like, let's get this going. And people are just so... That was the real gem that came out of that. Because then as I started looking for other jobs, I I said, okay, I'm ready for I'm ready for the title now. Now, mind you, I, I said looking for other jobs. At the time, I said to myself, you know what? The first pancake never turns out right. It's just this place. It's just not a good fit. And the next place I go, like that'll be the fit. It's funny because during the orientation at the new place, I got the spidey sense that this this doesn't feel right either. I brushed it off as just newness jitters, but I knew this isn't this doesn't feel right. I ended up taking a position to direct the pain clinic at Children's National. It was myself and one other uh, individual who we were both pain fellowship trained and pain boarded. Interestingly enough, like the other individual, she really didn't feel empowered to say or do much because of the way that the organization was structured. Anesthesiology is housed within what they call a perioperative center. So surgeons and anesthesiologists work under the same boss and that boss is a surgeon. So it makes for very interesting dynamics. Yeah, I'm, I'll pause there. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm glad you are taking a pause there because you have said so much. Some of the things that came to mind, there is a phrase that goes along the lines of people walk in their own light. They give other people permission to do the same. And I think the opposite is true. And your story definitely highlights that. Sometimes... And I'm not speaking to this particular individual or situation, but in general, sometimes in our life, professionally especially, we may see individuals that we perceive a difference in capacity. There is a difference in competence. I'll say that. Mm -hmm. And when we see that, it gives us permission to walk in our own light 
be courageous in that power, in that knowing of who we are, regardless if we had the title or not. It's the cautionary tale, right? You walk past maybe a horrible car accident, and now you're extra diligent to put your seatbelt on, uh, make sure your lights are on, make sure, because you're just now more aware of, wow, that that's a really negative consequence. And I think for me, I saw this individual as my cautionary tale. Like, no, you have to speak up. You, you have to be the one to say something, even in the sea of people who just want to conform, that no one is served that way if you're silenced. Absolutely. And you brought up something else that was really critical, I think, for all of us as anesthesiologists, regardless of our institution or, you know, we're clinical or not, is that the importance of social politics as a consequence of hierarchy and organizational structure and systems. So there may be individuals who have the ability, the ideas, you know, the innovative courage to be able to do things slightly differently or just be able to advocate for their patients in a unique way especially pediatric patients who are suffering with pain, with chronic pain. And the systems and infrastructure that is already in place, all that plays a role in how people are able to feel their actual power and to be able to advocate. You mentioned earlier in your story that, you know, there were some character attributes that you noticed in that anesthesiologist who had recruited you initially. And I thought it was very interesting to note that sometimes we admire in others what we already have in ourselves, mm-hmm. but the difference is, is we don't see that in ourselves as easily as we see in others. And it is sometimes with hard-won experiences that we come to recognize, wait a second, I've already been doing that. Mm-hmm. I too am a leader. I am exhibiting leadership. I am exhibiting emotional intelligence. When you talked about that cross-collaboration where you took the initiative to work with individuals outside of your own specialty for the betterment of your patients. To me, I said, she's already a cross-collaborative leader. She's already engaging in high-level communication at an executive level because you need input, you need buy-in from other people, from other individuals of authority to be able to enact your own policies. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love how you brought that in because it's like, oh, wow, yeah, all that did come into play um, throughout when I was at Children's National and then now. So I wish I can say that I planned out when I was going to leave and I had this elegant transition all situated, but that wasn't the case at all. I have been listening to uh, entrepreneurial type podcasts for a while because I felt like that really spoke to my experience of uh, having the skill that not too many other people in the organization had and selling it. You have to have other divisions like refer patients to you. As far as procedures and regional, it's like you're always talking to the surgeon about what you have to offer. And there was a lot of selling there. And it led me to seek out and listen to these podcasts. And one that really opened my eyes was Dr. Una's EntreMD podcast. I'll put in the show notes because that was the first time somebody said that you as a physician have choices. You have options. You have a voice and you can serve your patients as as you want and as 
you see that they need. Uh, and so I just binged all her stuff because it was just so like, so antithetical to what I was seeing in my experience. Like at, at every organization I was at, people were straight up were miserable. And I would look at them and be like, why? Like, what? Why are you here? Why are you doing this? And they were just like, well, you know, what else am I going to do? Like, this is the only peds, you know, peds anesthesia has got to be here. We need the paycheck. And I just bought a house coming out here. And so many people just did not feel confident in their ability to exercise their autonomy. They were sacrificing their their freedom for um, a steady check. And it's like, you're so talented and you're so bright. You don't have to do that. Um, and I think a lot of it is due to how we were trained in residency and fellowship because everybody who trained us stayed in their organization. They were up on call with us. You know, like we, I just look back and I'm like, didn't, didn't that feel crazy, Alicia, that your attendant was up two in the morning with you? Like, is that what you wanted for your I didn't even, think, you know, I didn't put two and two together then. Wait a minute. I don't want to be up with me. Like, <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was, and, and so by listening to her podcast and reclaiming my freedom, my autonomy, I was like, wow, there's so much I can do. I binged on that and it really set the seed for a transition. So, you know, COVID happened in 2020 and a lot of people left. Uh, every organization I worked at always talked about that they were short staffed anyway. And when COVID happened, now it's real. Now we really, really strapped. And even amongst the staff, there were folks who said, hey, I got lung conditions. I won't be able to do this. It was it was really rough and tight. And part of what made it so I wasn't stuck in the vortex of OR call was the fact that I did pain and my inpatient pain call, which was home call satisfied um, the call requirement. But anyhow, um, I saw a big shift in the hospital where now there's all these per diems. Problem I quickly discovered with per diems is that they very clearly was like, this is in my job description. This is not anything that wasn't in the job description was not done. And patients, they're, they don't know what your job description is. If something needs to be done, it needs to be done. Like somebody didn't, you know, take out the trash. Okay, you're going to let a patient walk in a room and see that? Like, what What are we doing here? What ended up happening is that physicians, we are the ones that have to like step in and do things that we really, that's really stretching us beyond what we should be doing, right? Like if I have to, to turn over this, this exam room, well, now that's less time than I'm actually spending being able to be with the patient, you know, or getting back a, a phone call or responding to a message, things that only I can uniquely do. Now I, I have to do that and part of someone else's job. And with the per diems, they were getting paid more than the dedicated full-time staff. So it's like, how is it that you're paying a person more that doesn't have a commitment? And yet your home staff is leaving you because you refuse to increase their pay. 
Like, this doesn't make sense. First of all, you're a wordsmith, Dr. Peterson. Absolute treasure of so many things that you're saying because it really applies to all of us. Sales. So I'm also an entrepreneur. And when he said that, I was like, okay, we got we got to talk about that because that is an underutilized skill, as you've mentioned, as Dr. Una's mentioned, as many of us uh, physician leaders have have learned and seen through our own experience. So you talked about selling your unique qualifications and the advantages of having a chronic pain training. That's one thing. I'd love to talk about how did you practice those words? How did you practice those approaches? And then the second part of the question is what you're saying right now with these per DMs, that they were in your eyes doing less but getting paid more. And also they were very resolute in their objectives, which is this is what I am paid for and I'm not doing more unless I am going to get paid for my time, effort, skills, et cetera. I definitely saw a parallel between the two. What do you think? Thanks for actually bringing that to the forefront because I didn't, at the time I was just frustrated, right? Because here I am getting paid the same regardless of if I overextend myself or not. I I just saw them as being lazy. Uh, But now that you kind of, you frame it that way, it's like, wait a minute. Okay. They're protecting their energy because they were getting paid for a certain role. If you want them to do more, you pay them more. The hospital adds a charge for every little thing they do for a patient. It is on that bill. It is billed to the insurance company. I'm not saying that as human beings, we should lose our humanity and compassion for one another. But, you know, looking back, I can see that, okay, they're not going to let themselves be abused (laughs) by the organization. Uh, Getting to your the first part of your question about sales, being able to communicate your value proposition. What is it that you can uniquely provide? And part of all of us being able to do that includes an inventory of your strengths and what evidence do you have that that is your strength? All of us have a unique selling proposition naturally. It's just a matter of, do we want to package in our position ourselves in a way to take advantage of it? We all have talent. People come to you and be like, oh, you're the best for advice. Or, oh, you know how to cook. You know how to bake. You know how to sew. I love how you dress. These are things that people come to you all the time and you probably ignore it because you're just like, well, yeah, that's nothing for me. You know, it's easy. It's simple. But it's not easy and simple because people are coming to you needing help in that unique area. So instead of dismissing your natural gifts, Why don't you actually hold it up so that others can see your Superman sign, right? And be like, hey, when I need help in this, I know to go to her. I know to go to him because that's that's what they do. They help people with X. That is, I I think, a big point of what sales does is that it just allows us to package and position our unique strengths. And a key element that many of us don't get in medicine is having that confidence in yourself. We've practiced enough to know, to be able to speak confidently on things. And and it's really necessary that we do. People who don't know anything are the loudest ones on social media. They have followings. And you're just like, how did this idiot like get all these people? And it's because they're just speaking confidently. They don't have the training you do. They don't have the compassion and the experiences that make what we do so valuable. 
forced me to really have conviction, confidence and conviction. It, it goes hand in hand. Like you have to believe that you can do what it is you say that you can do. And if you've done all the training for all these years, you can do what you say you can do. As you know, at Sivo Sisters, we demystify and diversify the field of anesthesiology all within the duration of a what? Anesthesia break. We're coming up on time. Break is probably over. Join us next week as we continue this thrilling conversation. Ta-ta! I hope you enjoyed this episode of Sivo Sisters. If you love this episode as much as I did, head on over and rate and subscribe so you don't miss out. New episodes drop every week on a Monday because we all can use a little something, something to get us through the week. Am I right? I'd love to hear more from you on the topics that you want to hear. So let me know in the comments. This is Dr. Peterson signing off. See you next time.